Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is our COVID-19 online learning. If you are a regular listener and subscriber, we hope that you will listen to um, these little mini lectures that we're putting out for our students. Since we can't go face to face because of the spread of the coronavirus, we do apologize if you are a subscriber and you're getting a bunch of content right away. You can adjust that so you only get uh, some of the main episodes. You can play with that. Please don't unsubscribe because that's important for a podcast that we have the, a certain amount of subscribers and uh, uh, well it's complicated we don't need to go th- go through all of that if you are a student um, these are in lieu of your face-to-face lectures and so we'll be emailing you of course and um, you can subscribe too but I know that I will email my uh, students and say here's the link to, to listen to this lecture week in and week out maybe even a couple times during the week Either way, welcome to our COVID-19 online uh, learning experience with Let the Bird Fly. Dr. Johnson has been grateful, gracious enough to come in and uh, help me talk about some of our intro to scripture lessons. We have gotten to the point where Jesus is going to go up to a mountain. He's going to be transfigured. He's going to come down the mountain. And then uh, the next major event, there's a lot that happens between these, but the next major event is his approach to Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and we'll try to get our way through Monday, Thursday as well. So the transfiguration, I like Luke 9's uh, 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 depiction of the transfiguration precisely because after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down the mountain, and in Luke 9, I think I want to say verse 51, we have what what's called a, a travel... Uh, indication there, a travel notification where Jesus says, now I'm going to Jerusalem and he's going to go there for the last time. So let's just tell the story about the transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus up a mountain. We're not quite sure which mountain. Most people think Mount Tabor. And there they, there Jesus is going to pray. And he is, uh, he's a marathon prayer, right? He takes a long time to pray. And uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, this will not be the first time they do that. They fall asleep uh, on the mountain because Jesus is praying so long. And when they wake up, they uh, discover something uh, quite unique. They see Jesus being transfigured. And what we mean by that is like he's shining bright, like a, his white, his clothes are like a, like like lightning. And they're like bleached. They're so white. And, and it's heavenly glory that they're seeing. And they also see Moses and Elijah there. So the, the Moses, the great prophet uh, uh, who brought down the Ten Commandments, so think law. And Elijah, one of the great prophets that was active during the history of Israel. Israel. So think the prophets there, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament people are there uh, seeming to indicate everything's about Christ here. We were always talking about Christ and here he is and the father booms from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him with him. I am well pleased like he did at the baptism of Jesus um, uh, a couple years earlier. The reaction of of Peter is probably one of the most important things about this story. He wants to bottle up this heavenly glory. And so he says, it is good for us to be here, Lord. And it is, it is good for him to be there. Let me set up three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. This is going to be good for the cause. I mean, people can come see this. Let's stay down here with this heavenly glory. And, and how could people turn away 
um, um, from believing in you, Jesus, if they saw this glory. Now, we don't know the conversation that was going on there, but Moses, both Moses and Elijah would have taught Peter a lesson there. Moses, who performed these these 10 plagues in Egypt, and it wasn't until the 10th and final plague that Pharaoh finally uh, succumbed. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt saw a lot of God's glory and still did not believe his heart was hard. And Elijah could tell you about another mountain on uh, Mount Carmel, where he had performed this great miracle showdown with the prophets of Baal. And still he ran away and uh, really zero converts there. Although some people, you know, uh, seem to seem to maybe follow the true God there, but he seems all alone and God comes to him in a whisper in the mountain, not the wind or the earthquake. And so uh, Peter's being a theologian of the cross here. And if he would have known what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about, he would have known they were talking about Jesus' death, right? And so Peter is the theologian of glory here, thinks this is great. He sees through the, the lens of glory, and this is going to be successful and great. It's outwardly. He sees with his eyeballs something great. But then the cloud comes down, and then when it lifts up, Jesus is back to his regular clothes and Moses and Elijah are gone. They go down the mountain. Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you saw. And then he says, we got to go to Jerusalem and he's going there to his death. Another lesson that we're supposed to be theologians of the cross to look through the lens of the cross. This is why Jesus came not just to perform miracles and prove his divinity or to show compassion to people, but to solve their real problem, which is impending death because of sin. And so he goes to the cross. You got anything to add to uh, just maybe, maybe Peter and the, and he's a classic theologian of glory, and he learns a lesson here uh, that actually he doesn't learn it very well. He's going to be a theologian of the, of the, of glory at the end of our lesson today, Monday, Thursday. But the lesson Jesus is telling Peter over and over again. Yeah, sorry, we uh, texting with the family, Mike, and <laughs> the kids are uh, in the family chat blaming Sophie for the coronavirus. Well, if you're going to blame uh, one of your children. Well, the funny thing is they only do it because she gets defensive about it. <laughs> and so, so I was like, why, what can that... Uh, uh, our friend Tyler Pierre, a pastor in Utah, going through an earthquake as well, too, um, said that uh, his one of his daughters, Chloe, that the, the students at school were calling it uh, uh, Chloe virus or COVID Clo Chloe 19 <laughs> nice. or whatever, and she was getting a little annoyed by that. So uh, anyway... Yeah, no, Maggie wrote because of something that came up today. Bro, this week is ever. So <laughs> it's Sophie's fault. And another kid wrote, Sophie, why you got to do this to us? <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, yeah, transfiguration. I mean, it's not the first time that Peter's going to have to learn this lesson. We talked about in the last uh, session for Theology 105, Peter makes this bold confession of Christ, and then Jesus speaks of his cross, and uh, this, is, this is not what... Uh, what Peter was looking for, and so Peter uh, wants to have a better plan, and Jesus has to rebuke him. And so I think it's this is a recurring theme, and, and we're sometimes unfair to Peter too because Peter has the role. He's kind of the spokesman for mm -hmm. the apostles. They do look to him to kind of speak, and then when Peter won't speak, then they have to like lean in on John and be like, hey, John, you know, you ask him. And, uh, and so in many ways, he's he's. We've all been there where someone he's speaks speak the thoughts we're all thinking. He's speaking for the group, right? Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, here now there's just the three of them, but this is a lesson. If we're talking Mark's gospel, Mark eight, 
is the confession, the rebuke. Mark 9 is the transfiguration um, where this will appear. And uh, you can see we're all kind of inveterate um, theologians of glory. You can identify who wouldn't see what they saw and say, Lord, it's good we're here. Mm-hmm. Like this is, um, and so what the Gospels are doing are driving home to us. Not that the Christian life is entirely suffering. Not the, the Christian life that we can't enjoy um, glory. You know, should the day finally come where my beloved Detroit Lions win the Super Bowl, I may well pray, Lord, it is good that I am here. Uh, like just, you'd be like Simeon, like, I can go now. Yeah. Your servant may depart in peace. And, and so we have wonderful moments in life. But it's those can't be divorced from the cross. It's that let's linger here. Let's set up the memorial here. This is what we, we should remember. And so that that glory can never be divorced from the cross. Even in heaven, when we're celebrating eternal glory, Christ will still, as trophies, bear the wounds mm-hmm. of his cross. He's depicted as lamb. Right. And so um, for Luther theology... And uh, ethics, the Christian life, Luther says, is, is cross, cross, cross. Um, it's a cruciform life. Right. And and that uh, leads to a much more lasting glory. This memorial would fade. It'd be like, a, is it the Shelley poem that's about the, uh, the statue, the Egyptian statue in the desert, and it's faded, and it's, uh, it's not Onesimus. That's, uh, anyways, Ozymandias. Um, you know, even the best monument is slow. In 300 years in D.C., the Lincoln Memorial is not going to look like it looks today. Or um, That glory fades. What Christ works through his cross is an eternal and a lasting glory for us. So underneath all of this... I don't know if that answers Yeah, that. underneath all of this is a lesson for us, but a lesson for the, for the disciples, this theology of the cross versus theology of glory. They've already seen it a few times, and they're going to... We're going to see it a few more times in this lesson in particular. Let's jump ahead to Palm Sunday. So Jesus is going to ride a donkey to fulfill the promise of the uh, the prophet Zechariah up the mountain to Zion, up the Mount Zion to Jerusalem, the capital city. This is where a king would have been, right? And the riding of the donkey, we try to, we try to say this is God's lowly pomp. We even sing that, right? that he didn't come with charioteers and donkeys and stuff like that. And I think that's fair enough, right? But the idea of a donkey actually being a royal animal, like a beast of burden kind of thing, that the, the king does hear, carry the burdens of his people. Um, when he rides a donkey, it was like, why are you riding a donkey? You're trying to like purposely say that you're lowly and humble? No, this would have been a royal scene. Not only that, but when he rides up uh, Jerusalem, um, the people put down coats on the road and palms, and so so no uh, no uh, no mud splashes up on the ankles. It it is a sign of respect for him. Think about like in days gone by, a woman's going to cross the street and her boyfriend puts down a coat on a muddy puddle so she can walk on it. That kind of thing. The palm branches are a sign of victory and of peace, and so they're waving their palm branches. They're singing Hosanna, which kind of means salvation. And and I'm not quite sure about this, but I've always kind of thought that Hosanna was kind of a to God save the king, right? So it's a kingly royal thing. And, and when they say God save the king, they're meaning God save us. You know, we get, uh, this, uh, we get protection and we get a strong economy through the king, right? And so all of these things are saying he is royal. 
He is royal. He is the king of the Jews. And it's quite a scene when he comes in. We're told all of Jerusalem is astir. Much like when the, the Magi came, those kings came. All of Jerusalem was astir. They, they're coming with, both come with a parade. Both come with an entourage. There's rumors being spread. Who are these people? Who is this Jesus? What's going on here? And uh, piques the interest of the leaders of, of the Jewish people. And so their plot against Jesus is going to start to get ratcheted up here right now. They have to do something. He's stirring the crowds up. What, what is going to happen? This is building up to the climax of Good Friday. And I've always uh, found it fascinating that uh, the way John dis de describes this, you know, he, he generic here, the Jewish people, you know, he's not being, he is Jewish, so he's not being anti, anti-Semite here. He's anti-Semitic. You can say anti-Semite. He's not being anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitic, yeah. So um, you, I forgot, you can I forgot be a, the article. You can be a self-hating okay. Jew. Yeah. I, let's not go down that road. I forgot the article. Well, but I've known, I've had yes, I know. experiences where Jews will joke that they're self-hating Jews. Sure. Um, I hate myself. I'm not saying that they should be. No. Absolutely. I've never understood that because Jews have actually accomplished, I mean, as people, like through all the suffering, whatever else, they gave us Jesus. It's a good one. Yeah. Einstein. Yeah. Like a lot of great Seinf stuff. Seinfeld. And all the meanwhile, people are being pretty mean to him. Right. So, I would always think like they have a pretty good I argument mean, to be like we're actually a pretty and some serious art and entertainment yeah. specifically. I mean like comedy's not com and I don't mean because oh Jerry's I mean like hundreds of years ago like comedy is yeah. comedy because of the Jewish people. So I'm just trying to say nice things yes. because I, I so when John says the Jewish people, he it's shorthand for the crowds kind of thing, right? Well, it's like in here. Um, if someone were, someone from the BBC is reporting on a rally in, in the States and they go, the Americans gathered, you right, know, right. this not, is... Not everybody, it's not making a, yeah. And remember again, in the ancient world, it's not like they were nice, but they didn't base things on race like we do. Race is an enlightenment concept. Right. They had a concept of ethnicity, yeah. but not of race. But not like, yeah, they, this would not Race kind of comes out of the enlightenment because people decided they wanted to rank them. Uh, and right. then you get you know, social Darwinism or whatever yeah. else. Okay. Right? So, and we've been through that with our class. So back to the original point. When John refers to the crowds, you know, screaming Hosanna, he says the crowds on Friday say crucify him. And I wonder if a lot of them were the same people, right? They have this mob mentality that are excited by this guy, but then uh, they put their finger up to the wind and they see where, where, where the wind is blowing and they end up turning on Jesus. And in our, our service... We go from the Sanctus, Holy, 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 which is also the Benedictus, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And then the next song that we sing, the organ that blasted the Sanctus now groans, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world as we go from Sunday to Friday. All right, so all of this is kind of another ironic picture, though that Jesus, the king of all, is going to come, and he's coming for his death. Uh, maybe you want to uh, tell me about this weird thing that happens during the week, the cleansing of the temple. What's this What's this all about, Wade? Uh, Jesus uh, seems to have some righteous indignation there. Sure. You want just a brief text update? Sure. Inappropriate language has now been used, and uh, Mother Johnston has stepped in and said... Uh, and with a bunch of ends, like, and this is why you plural are 
That means we are asked not to use these threads for your stupid comments <laughs> because this is supposed to just be like important family, like chores, whatever. Well, so this is how this is how good I am at marriage. I wrote exactly. I've been telling you all this because she always gets mad at me for leaving the leaving the text astray. Um, why don't you text her and say I'm reading this out loud? On the podcast, and no, see she what doesn't listen to the podcast. She won't know. No, but that that it is being broadcast to the greater WLC One, and two, beyond. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Guess how many texts I got before there was language we had to censor. <laughs> now, and it wasn't like a cuss word, but yeah, twenty, yeah. twenty-two. Now, text your dear wife. That, I'm not going to do this, and then see what her response is. No, she'll get mad at me. <laughs> All right. The cleansing of the temple. Let's stay focused. Yes. Well, um, I think the cleansing of the the temple, which right we can talk about twice or two cleansings of the of the temple, um, as they seem to be presented. We we uh, well, was it? It was for this class, um, Jehovah Yahweh. We were talking about right. This was one hundred five. We I can't remember, but we have talked we about that. We talked briefly about John eight before Abraham was. I am. Yeah. Right, Jesus makes this proclamation in the temple, and they're going to stone him. Uh, Jesus' appearances in the temple are always noteworthy. So he appears um, as the boy who's kind of coming of age. And the uh, pre- presentation before that. The right, the presentation. He, and then he appears as the boy who's coming of age, and he's discussing with the teachers there. Um, it, it's, it's never an event that's not noteworthy that's going to happen. It, it's always noticed. So the presentation is noticed by Simeon and others. Simeon's there to draw attention to it. Uh, with the cleansing of the temple, uh, Jesus is essentially uh, making very clear this is not what the temple was for. Uh, the temple was here to point to something. The temple, each sacrifice here was a, uh, oh, is it Isaac Watts who writes the hymn, Not All the Bloods of Bees, Not All the Blood of Bees, an Israel altar slain. Um, he is the fulfillment of the temple, and so he cleanses this temple. Uh, which had been basically turned into this transactional place. And this is always the great danger of uh, to the gospel is that religion becomes transactional. That, that the Quid pro quo. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so this kind of transactional, and think of the formalism that has to have, have developed, the, the ritualism, that you're going to go and you're just going to, it's like going to Seven Eleven and getting a burrito and microwaving it. You know, they're just um, trying to get around what the Lord has said, and it's it's not. These sacrifices were meant to drive home a point about what was taking place. So the cleansing of the temple is going to fit very importantly with the fact that Christ is our new temple. Uh, keep in mind, Christ will uh, do more damage in the temple, so to speak, with his death as well as what will happen when he dies. But the veil is torn in two, right? <laughs> this um, it its time will have come to to pass, um, but it definitely wasn't to be simply a money making uh, place, a transactional place, a house of formalism, uh, and, and these are all things that obviously it makes sense that the Lord would would cleanse it. Yeah. So just to kind of get the picture of of the the temple, it would not have been wrong for people to sell animals or to exchange money. I right. mean, this is people coming you know, from all over the world to the temple. They're not going to take their lamb from, from Libya, right? But this you know, is this is more like... It's in the temple. Manhattan, like you're buying a knockoff Gucci right. bag. And, and so on the surface, if somebody is exchanging money or selling these animals, that's not necessarily wrong. 
I think one is that they're doing it on the temple grounds, number one. Number two, there's certainly like, yeah, it's kind of the, the overall picture of a transactional thing. It's is, like, God, here's, here's this kind of, you know, Costco animal that I bought. Right. Um, please be happy with it. I did my job by right. Instead of the first fruits, the the best of, uh, of the flock, or and, an attentiveness to what the sacrifice was supposed to mean. Right. So overall, Gene, they're they're under, misunderstanding what's going on. He calls it. You've turned uh, this house of prayer, the house of God, into a den of robbers. You could also think that probably they're making a whole lot of money off of this. So, so think about going to church, and you have to rent a hymnal for three dollars. Right. And the guy who owns the hymn, like once it's a good deal, but this guy's quickly going to be making a lot of money off of the church service. There's just something wrong with that too. So there's a lot of different layers here. Jesus overturns the money chain. I mean, you can imagine coins going down these like marble floors, right? This would have been a, this would have been a huge scene. Think about Chuck E. Cheese. There'd be tickets everywhere. Think about going into um, uh, the United States Congress and just making a scene, right? And just everybody stops and like, what's going on? So he cleanses the temple and, and he doesn't do it out of, um, unrighteous anger, but righteous anger. And I don't know if we want to go down this, but there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? Um, if you, if you are anger, angry and upset at injustice in the world, that doesn't mean that that, that emotion is sinful. I think it can be sinful if it turns into vengeance, if you have no compassion, no love, um, that's when it becomes, becomes wrong. And so can God rightly be angry? Yeah. Uh, how could he not be? So he is going to, uh, uh, cleanse the temple, so to speak, right? He's going to drive out the, the people selling animals, overturn the tables of the money changers. Let's go to Monday, Thursday. So he's been staying out in Bethany. So he would have gone out into the east side of Jerusalem, past Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, down through Bethphage, where he picked up the picked up the the donkey, or his disciples did, and then to Bethany, where he is staying. And then he seems to come back every day. But when he comes in Thursday, he's going to stay there. Now Thursday is where they're going to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus is quote unquote like the head of the household here, and so I think he's going to run the liturgy of this seder meal, and he has the disciples uh, rent the room and get everything ready, and they're there up in the upper room and they're doing this Passover meal and he's going to change the Passover meal forever when he is going to say, this is my body, this is my blood. So my students have heard about the, the Passover meal a little bit, how there is uh, a Haggadah, there's going to be a recitation of the Exodus event and how this Passover meal pointed back to their biggest event, Exodus. And just for uh, other listeners, when you think about the Exodus for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, that's their biggest event. It, it is their biggest holiday. In fact, it's all of our holidays wrapped up into one. It has to do with freedom. So think July 4th. Uh, it's freedom from slavery. So think Juneteenth Day. Uh, it has to do with rights. So you think, may even think uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It has a meal, a family meal. So think Thanksgiving. It has a religious connotation. So think Christmas and Easter. It's everything for them. So this meal that they would have done probably weekly, but certainly once a year, pointed back to the Exodus, but it also pointed ahead to the true Lamb of God, whose blood would not be uh, spread on the door frames, but shed on the cross, and that blood would would uh, keep us from the wrath of God, the angel of the Lord who came and brought death upon the Egyptian households, uh, the death of every firstborn male. And there's a whole lot of 
uh, uh, symbolism going there. So when Jesus is eating this Passover and he's following this liturgy, the symbolic breaking of bread, he adds something. He said, this is my body. And then the, there would have been at least three different cups of blessing that would have meaning, a cup of thanks for revelation and thanks for uh, redemption. And then the one after supper, he changes when he says, this is my blood. And so this symbolizes, I think you said Mike. <laughs> so he gives. I'm just joking. He yeah, said it is. It is. And so he. Mike didn't like that joke. No, he I did not. So he changes this Passover meal. Now this Passover meal becomes the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and just like the Passover of the uh, before Jesus pointed back and pointed ahead, so this Holy Supper points back. Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me." It points back to the Lamb of God dying on the cross, but it points ahead to the lamb's high feast in in heaven so it points ahead and back just like that passover meal so if you think of a timeline jesus is in the middle and the passover meals on the left pointing back and ahead and holy communion is on the right in this timeline pointing back to the center but pointing ahead and notice there's lamb in each one of them the lamb's high feast in heaven the lamb's body and blood in holy communion the lamb on the cross um, the lamb and the Passover meal and the Passover lambs of Egypt. So he makes this a lasting ordinance for people. And like all things that Jesus is doing, he is fulfilling uh, the Old Testament law, but he's also fulfilling the, the types, the pictures of Jesus, uh, of, of himself, of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now it's the real deal. No longer are there just cleansing rituals, but there's going to be baptism that actually forgives sins. No longer is it going to be a male that just symbolizes the coming Messiah, but it is actually the Messiah's body and blood that gives the forgiveness of sins. During this meal, a couple things uh, happen outside of the institution of the Lord's Supper. We have a promise from Peter. We have an accusation of Jesus uh, before that uh, to specifically Judas, but to the group. And then we have this washing of feet. Uh, you want to comment on any of those? I know. You kind of didn't like my joke, and I thought that would go over better, so now I'm a little nervous. <laughs> you didn't give me that scowl. Um, I just do what you're supposed to do before I take your phone away. Well, I need my phone. That's how I'm getting the text messages. <laughs> so washing of feet. Tell me about the washing of feet. Well, this is obviously very important because we have a statue of it here at the college. Yes. And I don't think we would put a statue up if it weren't important. Mm -hmm. you agree with that? I do agree with that. Okay. Um, no, I mean, growing up in Catholicism, you would have the washing of the feet on Monday, Thursday. It's not something that's necessarily... So the, so the bishop or the priest would come and wash, symbolically wash feet of the people in the church, some of the Yeah, people. and you'll still have that in, in certain churches. Um, in fact, the the Monday, um, when we talk of Monday, Thursday, the mandatum is really that to love one another, right? This this service picture. Um, yet at the same time, <coughs> excuse me, swallowed by the wrong, wrong pipe there. Um, but at the same time, uh, I guess the something that I find important to distinguish between us when Jesus um, washes feet, he's not instituting a sacrament or necessarily instituting a practice that has to be carried out. Uh, in different cultures, washing of feet could be very off-putting. Uh, you know, Mike, if I came over or you came over to my house, mm -hmm. you know, 2020 America, mm -hmm. and uh, all of a sudden I pulled off your socks and shoes and started washing your feet, you would probably be uncomfortable. Is That'd that be correct? weird. Yeah. But at this time, uh, what this is is illustrative. It's it's making a point. 
Um, so he's taking a role that would be beneath him as savior or even as rabbi, right? He's the leader of this group. He is, they call him master. Um, and so he's making a point about that love. But notice that that's different than the Lord's Supper and that here he's in, he says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So I think we really understand the foot washing best, not when we make it simply a rite that we do once a year and we say, isn't that nice? But we'd rather understand the point that Jesus is illustrating, which is that we're willing to put our neighbor above ourselves and that we don't think of ourselves uh, according to rank or status primarily, um, but vocationally we look for how we can best serve our neighbor. And Peter... Op- and that's not to dismiss yeah. it, but... Peter opens his mouth and says, you know, uh, uh, you know, don't... I want to... I, I should be serving you, Master, right? This is a servant's job to wash feet in the ancient world. And Jesus says, um, if, if uh, I don't wash you then you have no part of me, right? Right. And so uh, a symbolism of the washing away of sins. And then Peter, of course, still opens his big mouth and says, um, well, then not just my feet, but my whole body as well, right? He doesn't get it. And uh, that's when Jesus says, you know, you don't need to because you're clean. And what he means is you are righteous in the sight of God because you trust, but not all of you are clean. So we have a hint that there is one among them who is not a believer. And that's the way we're talking about Judas Iscariot, of course, here. And that's the way we should look at Judas Iscariot, not just because he was a lover of money, not just because he was a bad person and he was a betrayer, like he stabbed somebody in the back, um, but that he didn't trust that was the problem. He didn't trust. And therefore he was in a system of righteousness by law. And then he's going to be judged as a, as a lover of money and somebody who has sin and not be judged by the righteousness of God. So Peter's clean because he trusts because Christ is righteous in his place finally. Um, and Judas is not, uh, Jesus, uh, says some troubling things during this, this evening too. He says quite a few things. He, uh, he gives a lot of comfort. He has the feet washing. He gives them the mandate to, to love one each other and the mandate to, to do this meal, um, in remembrance of me, uh, the forgiveness of sins through his body and blood. But he also says, one of you is going to betray me, right? And they all are saying, no, not I, not I, not I. And, and Peter, of course, as the spokesman says, I'll even go to death for you, right? So he's being a theologian of glory once again, um, but he's going to fail later that evening. Right? Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting with Judas, um, when we were still allowed to have midweek Lenten services before all this broke out, um, one of them was the uh, account of, you know, that you're referencing that Judas says, one of you will betray me. Or not, that Jesus says that, and um, eventually it gets, you know, they, they go through the surely not I, Lords. And uh, by the way, notice those are questions. Like they all, they recognize that there's always the possibility mm-hmm. it could be them. I always find that to be a, a poignant point. It's Peter who's going to say, <clears throat> I won't. Right. right yeah. And, um, but then, uh, you know, he's going to say to Judas, yeah, it's you, bro. And, um, and, you know, Maggie wrote on her bulletin, like, why didn't Judas just not do it then? <laughs> well, keep in mind, Judas has already put this. He's already done it. Yeah, he's yeah. already put this into place. And I think that's helpful to remember, too, because sometimes here, Judas is the famous example people will use for, does God, for knowing something, mean it will have to happen, right? Like, did Judas have no choice in this or something like that? Well, the fact is, here Christ knows what Judas has done. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not Jesus, like, mandating Judas to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a, a, an acknowledgement of his omniscience. And notice, though, too, he addresses him with friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
Peter and, and Judas get used for the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Uh, but it's not as if Judas had a merciful sa- or Peter had a merciful savior and Judas didn't. Um, Peter was just graced to uh, keep that hope of a merciful savior in his mind. Uh, and, and so uh, when Jesus rises in Mark's gospel, which can be an episode for its own day, but Mark's gospel largely probably based on Peter's preaching. The women say, go tell the disciple, or the, the angel by the grave tells them, the women go tell the disciples and Peter, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, you know, it's not as if Judas did not have a merciful God as well. And who knows, maybe, you know, Judas in the midst of the hanging repents. I, I, no one's beyond God's grace. Um, but this is, you know, something that Judas has already set in place at this time. Yeah, so just to fill it out, he's already plotted with the leadership of the, of the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus, 30 pieces of silver as predicted um, by, the, by the scriptures in the Old Testament. And yeah, you know, this is a troubling question. Why, what, hap- why, what happens to Judas and why what happens to, to Peter? Well, both of them would have had grace not because of anything they did. Judas refuses that grace. He does not believe it in the sense that he does not trust it. I mean, I think he cognitively probably knows. He just does not trust God, and that's his fault. So it's it's kind of a hard thing because Peter didn't do anything to earn this grace. Neither did Judas. And so it's not either of their doing. But the doing of rejecting is something that human beings do. And we're held accountable for that. And so Judas rejects. He does not trust. A dead body can stay dead. It can't come to life. Right. And what we mean by there is somebody who is dead and dead apart from faith, right? Dead in sins. He can't on his own come back to life. Right. right. You okay. can put a dead body on a hill and it could roll down the hill, but it can't climb up it. So um, some other things before we go into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, later that night, although I By think the way, Mike... We're gonna, when we're, I do die, I will roll you down a hill. Yeah, please do. Did you ever do that as a kid? That was super fun. That was. Not just with, like one last not, thing. like Not with dead bodies. But but yeah, but I just, I would appreciate that. <laughs> or if it's winter, sled me down a hill. I have no problem doing that. I have a problem getting you up a hill, though. No, just leave me on the bottom. No, I, I mean like in the first place getting you up on a hill. Well, there's some places you drive right up. You're on top of the hill. I suppose. But I got to get you in the car and get you out. This seems like a lot. Well, you, you said you would. You know, the few, I'm not asking a big thing. Yeah, the, you know that would be. The, the, there's probably some. The other option is if you think this is better, the plan now the boys both know, is for me to be cremated, and then they get tickets to a Lions game at Ford Field. No, no. They run on no, the field. No, they no, throw the because you know how that no, field turf already has all yeah, the little black no, stuff in it. No. And then I'm I'm there in the turf forever. No, I don't like I don't like the cremation ashes thing. It's but, like, I mean, but the plan is good, is it not? The plan is good. We'll do something else. Instead. Because like every time like someone slides on the field, you see that stuff shoot. There's got to be a market for this. Like, like weird, my ashes could get in like Aaron Rodgers' face when he does a little <laughs> slide <laughs> like after when scramble. We, like when you know, if we if this coronavirus totally kills the economy and we're out looking for a job, maybe we could start a company that like we'll do weird stuff at your funeral for you. Like we'll be those guys if the family. Pays you want to go on one us. last adventure? We'll take you. That's right. We'll do it. 
We can do work weekend at Bernie's kind of thing. You never got to go to a Red Sox game. We'll yeah. take you down to, to Fenway. Right, we'll see get, up This is getting us. dark. We gotta we gotta mention one last thing. Next time we're gonna get into the garden of Gethsemane into Good Friday. But um, here's where I'd like to talk about when Jesus says, "I'm the way and the truth and the life." And so, uh, what, what does that mean? Way and the truth and the life. We can add there, God is love as well. And sometimes we try to um, maybe pit these against each other, right? Like love versus truth, right? And so I have to not say something truthful to somebody because I want to be loving or whatever. Um, or the, the, the Christian church should deny some of the truths in, in order to be loving. And sometimes we did to pick those things and we try to, uh, uh, we try to, I should say, we try to pit them against each other. But here it's kind of fascinating to say that love is a person, that truth is a person, that the way is a person, that the life is the person. And so we don't split up Jesus, right? We don't say here's, he's love over here and he's truth over here, but he is the whole thing always, right? And so love sir, or truth serves love in that kind of way. Uh, Jesus is the way that he is the way to heaven. He is the one that is going to cleanse us. He is the truth. He is the eternal logos. He's the, all things were created through him. So things are the way they are the truth because of him. And he is the eternal life being connected to him without him. Then you are going to succumb to death, uh, eternally. So there, there's, quite a bit going on there with the way, the truth, and the life, and I would add to that love. He also promises to send the, send the Spirit, the, the Counselor, and it's interesting that the Spirit is called Counselor there, that he is the one who is a guide, who helps us out, who tells us the truth. And so through the Word of God, that's how the Holy Spirit works right? This is the, the, the spirit has physical means that he uses baptism, Holy communion, absolution, and, and the word of God, these physical things. And so how do I get guidance? How do I have this divine counselor? Well, it's going to be through the word of God. All right. Thanks for listening. Um, next time we'll get to the passion of Christ. We'll go through the garden of Gethsemane through Pilate's court and to the cross until then let the bird fly.